Leia is a Star Wars character. <laughs> uh, I'm nerdy, but I'm not that nerdy. I'll save that one for Corey. Hey, how many of you knew Be Strong in the Lord and had sung that song before? Show of hands. Not many of you, a few of you. How long have you been playing piano in churches? And that was the first time you ever played it in church? I feel like I have accomplished something this week. That is awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So two pieces of paper tonight. We are going to talk about Leah. There's a regular notes, and then there is a genealogy. I'm going to put the genealogy on the screen, and uh, it's going to be as big as I can get it on the screen. It's not super clear, and the words are really small, so I thought I'm just going to print it for you so you can also have it right in front of you, and uh, that may be helpful. So we're going to talk about Leah. How many of you knew, as we jump in and think about Miss Leah, how many of you knew that yesterday was Siblings Day? Any of you guys see that on Facebook? How many of you posted a picture of you and your siblings? I saw a few of you did that. Siblings Day, April 10th. It is not federally recognized as a holiday like Mother's Day or Father's Day is, but some of you will be glad to know that there is something called the National Siblings Day Foundation. And they are working to change that feverishly, lobbying for it to be a real holiday. And my, my thoughts are when I read National Siblings Day Foundation, I read that's Hallmark lobbying to make it a day so that you and I have to buy one more card. If you don't want to wait on the United States government to get with the program, you can move to northern India. They have celebrated Siblings Day in northern India for over 300 years. So they're old pros at it, and it's a big deal there, so maybe that's your place. How many of you guys, thinking about siblings, how many of you ever watched The Brady Bunch? Everybody's seen The Brady Bunch. There's an episode, and I, I was going to pull the clip off, and I did not do that. I don't have the clip, so I'm sorry if that disappoints you. You can get on YouTube and see it. There's a clip where the middle sister, Jan, is put out by her older sister, Marcia. And she goes into the room, and she basically takes all of Marcia's trophies down. And Marcia comes up to the room, and all her awards are taken down. And she's like, what in the world? Why did you do this? And so they have the family powwow. And there's this scene where they're in the den. And uh, Mom and Dad Brady sit down with Jan. And they say, what's going on? And she gives this famous line as she's talking about Marcia so great. She said, Marcia, Marcia, Marcia. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. She gets all the awards. She gets, you know, everything goes her way. Everybody loves her. And they say, oh, you know, it's not that. It's not like that. You know, she, they're trying to kind of talk her off the ledge. And then Marsha walks in the room and says, guess what? I just got made editor of the school newspaper. And Jan rolls her eyes. And you just sort of get this feeling like Jan can't win. She just can't win. And she's constantly living in the shadow of her older sister. I, I thought of a few other folks uh, this week, and I'm just, I'm just mentioned two, but uh, modern-day real people who probably have siblings that are frustrated in their shadow. One that I thought of was Jeff Bezos. Um, Jeff Bezos owns Amazon and a lot of other things. He is officially now the world's richest man, although over the last couple of weeks their stock has taken a hit and that's declined a little bit, but 
as of the time that I prepared this lesson, he was worth a whopping $112 billion, which is an incredible amount of money. And several articles I read uh, suggested that he was more than likely on pace at some point because of his age to become the wealthiest man adjusted for inflation in the history of the world. He's got an incredible amount of money. And he also has a brother named Mark and a sister named Christina. And if you are Mark or Christina, I just don't know what you do to top the world's richest man. I don't know how you ever get out from that shadow. He's the world's richest man. The other one I thought of was Michael Jordan. Uh, He has four siblings. He has two sisters and two brothers. One of his brothers actually played in the NBA, and he is now employed by Michael uh, in the front office position with the Hornets. He has another brother who is a decorated Army veteran, a very successful military career. One of his sisters owns a publishing company, which is a pretty impressive thing in my book. But at the end of the day, they're just Michael Jordan siblings. How do you get out from the shadow of the greatest basketball player, one of the greatest athletes who's ever lived? Some of you are nodding your head because you're thinking about one of your siblings right now, and you're like, I hate that guy. I hate that girl. It's always about them, and parents love them the best, and you're thinking about that. And some of you are thinking, "Ah, it's good to be on top. I'm that. That's me. I'm I'm on the top in my family. And uh, so I don't know where you fall in that. But on either side of that spectrum, you can probably relate to Leah. And so let's begin with this quote from James Montgomery Boyce, pastor, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's passed away. He says this in his commentary on Genesis. Six of Jacob's sons were born of Leah. It was a great honor and a blessing for her. But Leah was the wife Jacob had not wanted. In spite of his kindness to her, Not even her outstanding ability to produce sons could win Jacob's lasting favor. She was a frustrated woman. It's hard not to pity Leah. In fact, we should say more than that. It is proper to pity Leah. For the passage tells us that even God had pity on her by opening her womb and giving her many children. Leah had been guilty of conspiring with her father to deceive Jacob on the night of the marriage. She had been substituted for Rachel whom Jacob was expecting. And there is no way that could have been done without her willing participation. She probably loved Jacob. She wanted to be married to him. Desires like these turned her from an entirely upright course, but now, in a polygamous marriage, she was to learn the high cost of her deception. It is true that Jacob probably realized the hand of God in his experiences, and therefore he learned to be kind to Leah, and shield her, but his fondness for her sprang from mercy and not from a husband's proper passion for his wife. So there's Leah, and she is a fascinating study as we think about heroes in the Old Testament. This is where she fits in the timeline. Uh, I put this timeline up. Corey's put this timeline up every week. She falls in the period of the patriarchs, and if you have your family tree, you might just pull that out and Look at it and look up on the screen, and I'm going to try to point out a couple of things. I gave you some verses here, Genesis 12 to 25. That's the story of Abraham and Isaac, excuse me, uh, Abraham and Sarah, and they have a son named Isaac. 
Genesis 21 to 27 are the story of Isaac and Rebekah, and they have twin sons Jacob and Esau. And then Genesis 27 to 33 tell the rivalry between Jacob and Esau, and then the rivalry between Laban and Jacob. So that just sort of sets the context, and we'll look at this genealogy for a second. The men are in black, and the women are in red. And the first thing I want you to see uh, is just the first four names up at the top below Terah. Abraham, Sarah, Nahor, and Haran. I realize that on this particular genealogy, this is one of the things I don't like about this one that I provided for you. It looks like Terah only had three sons. Uh, He actually had at least one daughter. Sarah was his daughter. And Abraham mentions that much later in Genesis, after we meet them, when he's, he's in uh, Gerar with Abimelech, and he pawns him off. We talked about Abraham doing that to Sarah mul- at least twice, pawns her off on Abimelech, and Abimelech says, what in the world, why did you tell me that she was your sister? And he says, well, she is my sister. We have the same dad, but not the same mom. So you just, I put that up on the screen, so you see Terah has Abraham, Sarah, Nahor, and Haran, and Abraham and Sarah end up married. The next slide I want you to see shows us how we get to Isaac. And Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca. And you see that Rebecca has a brother named Laban. Rebecca and Laban are the offspring of Bethuel. And Bethuel is the son of Nahor. And Nahor comes from Terah. So when Isaac marries Rebecca, it's sort of like a second cousin thing. Okay, They're from this same big family tree and they end up getting married. And I also put a circle around Lot uh, just so you can see how he ends up in the whole story and where he fits in and how he would be connected to Abraham since he's mentioned uh, in those passages. The next slide shows Jacob, and he marries two of Laban's daughters, both of his daughters. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. He marries Leah the older and Rachel the younger. And then mixed into that mess is Bilhah, who is Rachel's servant, and Zilpah, who is Leah's servant. And we'll discuss a little bit of that, how those ladies fit in tonight. The last thing I wanted to show you, and I think this is helpful, at least it's helpful for me to sort of picture this. I want you to see Jacob's sons, the 12 uh, sons or the 12 offspring of Jacob. And I like this because it has numbers and it shows you the order of where these kids fall in. So the first four kids are born to Leah. That's Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And at that point, Rachel gets jealous. She knows that she can't have children, at least at that point. So Rachel substitutes Bilhah, her servant, in for her. And then here comes Dan and Naphtali. And then Leah gets upset by that, and she wants to do the same thing. So she substitutes Zilpah in there. And here comes Gad and Asher. And then we come back to Leah for Issachar and Zebulun. And then finally, Rachel has Joseph, number 11, and Benjamin, number 12. And we're going to talk about uh, some of those boys and how it all fits together uh, tonight. So maybe that helps you make sense of some of the people. This is like, uh, when you read these chapters, it's like taking a trip to Arkansas. Okay, You just got every turn, they're marrying half-sisters and second cousins and cousins And I can relate to this. When I was a pastor in Kentucky, the very first wedding that I was asked to perform, ever as a pastor to officiate over a wedding, 
was a guy and a gal, and it wasn't quite as bad as what we just looked at as far as cousins and second cousins. There was no blood there, but the families had already married together, and it was, it was enough to kind of creep me out, and I just had to make sure. You're really not related, are you, before we do this? This is legal. So it's, it's that same kind of mess. And uh, I would just mention this. We kind of laugh at it and we joke about it, but this is before some of the rules and laws and commandments that God gave to his people through Moses. So we're in a different epic of redemptive history where these people had not received certain commands and laws. And quite frankly, uh, the marriage patterns you see here as far as sort of second cousins and aunts and uncles and people just all being in there together was very common in the ancient world and is still common in parts of the world today. Expectations in some uh, people groups is very rigidly formed expectations about who you're going to marry and your uncle's this or your aunt's this or whatever. So not an uncommon thing at all, even though it seems strange to us. Let's talk about Leah's life story. We'll start with family. Family is the first stage, and I'd like you to take your Bible out and look at Genesis 29. I'm going to read a little bit here. Leah does not take up a lot of space in the biblical text, and so we're not going to read everything that the Bible says about her, but we're going to try to read a decent bit of it. Genesis 29. We actually meet Laban. Back in Genesis 24 and 25 when we meet Rebekah. Uh, you may remember that there was sort of an arranged marriage as Abraham sent a servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And they end up at Laban's house and Rebekah comes back and uh, uh, Laban is part of that story. Um, so you can go back and look at that. But it really comes to the forefront in Leah's family or you could say Laban's family in Genesis 29. So look at Genesis 29, and let's just read starting in verse 1 to about verse 20. The text says this, Then Jacob went on his journey, and he came to the land of the people of the east. You remember, he is on the run. Jacob is a man with a contract on his head. His brother has vowed to kill him for how he has deceived him and swindled him and cheated him. So he's on the run. And he comes to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran, which ought to sound familiar if you've read the story of Abraham. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It's well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, 
and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my bone. Uh, You are bone, excuse me, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now look, we'll just pause right there in verse 15. You live in a culture that is very direct for the most part. When we want to say something to someone, we say it. And it may make us nervous or uncomfortable at times to be confrontational, but we're just very direct. Many Eastern cultures, Asian cultures, African cultures are much more circumspect about how they bring up something that they, they, they have an issue with or some confrontation that they need to deal with. And most Bible scholars will tell you that in verse 15, what Laban really wants to say to Jacob is, you're a freeloading bum and you need to quit mooching off of me and get to work. That's kind of how we would say it. Hey, get off the couch, get out of the basement, put the video games down and go work the sheep. Get out there and make a contribution. That's not how they did things in that culture. And so he sort of comes and he has this question about, well, how much should I pay you? Hint, hint, hint. Very suggestive here. And it tells you something about Laban that a month goes by and he's tired of of Jacob mooching off of him. Verse 16. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And we'll just stop right there in verse 17 to talk about that verse for a minute. We talked about Leah several months back when we went through the Little G God series. And one of the things I pointed out in that series is that Leah had weak eyes. Or some Bible translations say she had dim eyes or she was not Uh, good at seeing. There was something there, a lazy eye or a a disability or something. And several people came to me after that uh, series and said, okay, in my Bible, it says that she had soft eyes or tender eyes. And I think that's in the King James and the New King James. Present a, a translation that doesn't sound quite as bad as dim eyes. Uh, or weak eyes. One translation even says that she had no sparkle in her eye. And so some people came and said, well, my translation reads a little bit differently. And I said, well, we're not going to fight about it or argue about it. But I think it's clear in verse 17, however you want to translate this idea that her eyes were weak, there's a contrast being set up. Don't miss the contrast. There's a contrast. Leah looked this way. Describes something about her physically, but here's the contrast. This is what Rachel was like. Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And so if the contrast is between these two sisters and both of the the parts of the verse mention a physical feature, I think it's best to look at that, that first part and to say that she had a deformity, she had a disability, she wasn't very pretty. However you want to translate that, 
she wasn't as good looking as Rachel. I think that's what the text is clearly trying to say to us. So let's keep reading. Verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So remember, we're, we're dealing with the question of wages. What am I going to pay you for you to get off my couch and start working the sheep? And Jacob's plan is, well, how about seven years of labor and I, In exchange for that, I get to marry Rachel. Look what Laban says and pay attention to what he does not say. Verse 19, Laban said, It is better that I give her, that's Rachel, to you, Jacob, than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. This is classic politician talk, right? He just answers a completely different question. He answers a question that Jacob didn't ask. Jacob did not come and say, Hey, Uncle Laban, what do you think would be better, for me to marry your daughter or for some foreigner, some guy you don't know, you don't trust, comes from a crazy family? Would it be better for him to marry your daughter or me? That was not the question, but that's the question that Laban answers. He says, Well, you know, it would be better. If she married you, then someone else. So hang around. There is no signing on the line with the fine print clear to both parties. You have Laban who sees an opportunity. And you have Jacob who can't see anything because he's got stars in his eyes. And he's hearing what he wants to hear. And his plan is, I'll work seven years for your daughter. And he says, well, you know... guess I could do worse. Well, hang around. So he hangs around. Jacob said to Laban, verse 21, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Which is funny, because Jacob's name literally means deceiver. And he's been doing that all his life. And he's thought it was really cute when he was wearing the goat skin and fooling dad and ripping his brother off. But now when sin turns around and kicks him in the tail, he's not amused by it. Why have you deceived me? The con man has been conned. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. And we will give you the younger also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so, and he completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah. 
and served Laban for another seven years. So in reading that, we have moved from family into the stage that we're going to call marriage. Stage one, we meet her family, Laban, Rachel. Stage two in her life story is this marriage. Now I'll be honest with you. There's sometimes when I read something in the Bible and I'm just not exactly 100% sure which way to slice this. So I'm going to give you two options. I'm going to tell you the way I lean, and you can disagree with me if you want to. One way to read this story is to put all the blame on Laban and to say, look, Laban had two daughters. One was a looker and one was not. And he knew he was going to have a hard time marrying this girl off. And here comes a young man, drunk on love, stars in his eyes, hearing what he wants to hear, and Laban sees an opportunity. And he basically takes advantage of the situation to get rid of Leah so that she won't be a burden to his household. This would be not an uncommon idea in a patriarchal society. It's not uncommon to what you see in some parts of the world even today. And you could put all of the blame on this situation on Laban and say Leah was just a pawn and really didn't have a hand to play in this game. She just sort of is being used by the men in the situation. I think that's possible. Here's another possibility. Okay, When you think about this wedding, it's clear that this is a big event. Okay, you think about Eastern cultures and the big excitement of a wedding and everyone together for a party. It says that he invited all the people of this place and they all come. Um, we know that Laban is not a very nice guy. We know that Jacob is not a very nice guy. We would completely expect in this culture and this time for there to be alcohol at this wedding. And my guess is that Jacob was drunk off his rocker. And I don't know exactly when the plan came into Laban's mind, but at some point it did come into his mind to substitute this woman. And it seems like when you read the text, he didn't just do it at the beginning of the wedding party, but he did it at the end of the wedding party. That they went through all the feasting and the partying and the ceremony with Rachel, and then when evening came, when it was dark, and there were no electric lights to help everybody out. And Jacob was feeling pretty good from the party. Here comes Leah, possibly with a veil. And Jacob doesn't know the difference. And my suggestion is that Leah very well could have had something to do with that. Could have been in on it. And if you side with uh, Dr. Boyce in the quote that we started with, then that's the conclusion that you reach. That at the very least, she was complicit in going along with it. And that at any point, she could have hit the brakes on this situation and said to Jacob, Hey, it's Leah. It's not Rachel. That would have been a pretty easy fix if she had wanted to do it. Maybe she saw an opportunity. Maybe she's lived all of her life in Rachel's shadow and she knows this is maybe my only chance to get out from behind her. Maybe, again, this is just sort of thinking through these characters... Maybe it's even more than that, and maybe it was really her idea. Maybe years of playing second fiddle to her younger sister made her bitter and angry. And maybe she saw an opportunity, whether it was her idea first or Laban's, or they put their heads together. She saw an opportunity, perhaps, to spite her sister. We do know this. After they're all one big happy family, 
Leah does not hold back from throwing things in Rachel's face. So it's safe to assume, I think, that maybe before the marriage, she was the exact same kind of person. That spitefulness didn't just pop up out of nowhere, and maybe some of this was her plan. You slice it out however you want to. She ends up getting married, and Rachel ends up getting married, and they're married to the same man. And verse 30 says this, Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. That's conflict, right? That's the author of Genesis telling you there's about to be trouble. Because now you've got these two sisters, and you've got a rivalry, and you've got a competition, and they're in the same family now. And Jacob loves one more than the other. And you say, where did Jacob learn to be that way? Learned it from his parents, right? Isaac loved Esau. Because he was a hunter. And Rebecca felt sorry for Jacob because he was always hanging out in the tent. So she took up for him. And his parents took sides and played favorites. And that's all he knew. That's not to let him off the hook. That's just to say the sin of the parents was passed down to the children 100%. So he loves one more than he loves the other. That next stage that we come to we'll call children. Children. I'm going to let you read that. It begins in chapter 29, verse 31. It runs through chapter 30. Um, If we could put the genealogy back up, I've zoomed in on part of this. And again, you have it right in front of you. You can see the order Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Then we jump to Rachel's servant, Bilhah, and we add Dan and Naphtali. We jump back to Leah's servant, Zilpah, and we add Gad and Asher. Then we go back to Leah for Issachar and Zebulun. And you notice Dinah is listed there. Okay, we'll come back to her in a second. And then over with Rachel, we finally add Joseph and Benjamin. A couple other things I just want to mention quickly on, uh, on this section of children. There's a couple of strange stories. One story is that the family is traveling. Rachel is pregnant with Benjamin. She goes into labor. She dies in labor, and they bury her on the side of the road. In our minds, that sounds very strange. But there was no funeral home to call. There was no one to embalm her. There was no hope of taking a body with you in the hot Middle East, down the road to wherever the family plot would have been. And so they make the best of the situation, and they bury her right there. And it's interesting that when Rachel dies, we read a specific story about how she died and where it was and what happened and how they buried her. Leah doesn't get the same treatment. We know that in the end she dies, and way later we pick up a little detail about where she's buried, but she doesn't get the same treatment that Rachel got, which is kind of fitting, right? Because she never got the same treatment Rachel got. Rachel always got the attention. She always got the spotlight. And even in their death, uh, Rachel was in the spotlight and Leah was not. There's one odd story in here. I'll just mention it. We don't have time to really jump into it. But uh, some men come and rape Dinah. And Jacob finds out about it. He finds out that his daughter's been raped and he doesn't do anything about it. Really strange, and I wish I could tell you why he was so unconcerned about that or maybe why he was fearful about that. 
But the text tells us that her brothers took up for her, Simeon and Levi. And I would argue they did a noble thing in sticking up for their sister and bringing judgment on the men who violated their sister. And that comes into play later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on pause and we'll come back to that. The last stage is her burial. And I told you that it's not mentioned in the flow of the story. It is mentioned in retrospect. When you get to chapter 49, Jacob has made his way to Egypt. We've gone through all the Joseph stuff at that point. He's brought his family to Egypt, and Jacob is about to die. And he's sort of reminiscing. And just look at Genesis 49, verse 28. Let's just read it. It's not long. Genesis 49, 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. Notice they didn't bury Abraham and Hagar there. They buried Abraham and Sarah there. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried who? Leah. You read the story up to this point you would completely expect Jacob to say, I want to be buried with Rachel. I don't care what the consequence is. She was my favorite. She was my love. I worked 14 years for her. You put me in the ground beside Rachel. But at the end of his life, I think something has clicked. And rather than say, remember, he's in Egypt. He could have said, take me back anywhere. Wouldn't have been any harder to take him back to the side of the road as it would have been to take him to the cave at Machpelah. But what he says is, I understand now with some perspective in my life what God has been doing. And I understand that the promise was passed from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac, from Isaac and Rebekah to me, and it's going to go from me to Judah. He understands that because he's talked about it in Genesis 49. And so he doesn't say, go bury me with my favorite wife. He says, bury me next to Leah in the cave with the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and me and Leah. So we're going to come back to that here in just a little bit again. That's the last stage is her burial. Let's talk negatives and positives. Here's a negative. She participated in Laban's lie in order to get married. She participated in the lie. Once she was married, she tried to find happiness in her marriage and her children. This was our emphasis when we were talking about little g-gods and we looked at Leah and we looked at Jacob. You can almost, I don't know if the right term would be cut Leah some slack. You can almost sympathize with her and why when her father doesn't want her and her husband doesn't want her, she would look somewhere wrongly and in an idolatrous way to find meaning and purpose, but it's still idolatrous. And I just want you to see how she does this. Look in Genesis 29, and look what she says 
We'll just start reading in verse 31. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. Why did she name him Reuben? Because she said, the Lord has looked on my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She named him Reuben in the hopes that maybe since I have this baby, he will love me. Period. I need him to love me, to be happy, to be content. It goes on. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. So she's still focused on, I'm a hated woman, and because of that, God has given me this son. So maybe this son is what's going to make me happy. It seems like I'm not going to be loved by my husband. There's no hope here that Jacob's going to love her. But there's hope that, well, maybe I've been given this to find my purpose or my meaning. Verse 34, again she conceived and bore a son. And she said, now, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Her hope all along the way with these first three kids. And remember, it takes us 15 seconds to read those three verses. That was at least... Two and a half years of her life. Maybe longer. And all the way through that, she's hoping, maybe this will make my husband love me. That's what I want. Maybe this will give me meaning and significance. Having a child, having a baby. Maybe three sons will do it for me. All along the way, she's looking for happiness in her marriage and her children. And she never finds it. Here's the positive. Eventually, Leah looks to Yahweh to find her value. At some point, she figures it out, and that some point is verse 35. It says, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. No conditions about, I'll praise the Lord if Jacob loves me. No conditions about, well, now I have four sons, so that makes me the most important wife. No thoughts about maybe this baby will give me value and significance and purpose and meaning. She just simply says, this time I will praise the Lord. And she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. So eventually she looks to the Lord for her value. How does she point us to Jesus? Two thoughts as we wrap up Miss Leah. Number one, against all odds, Leah became part of the Messianic line. She becomes part of the Messianic line. I realize when you read through these genealogies of how we get from Abraham all the way up to Jesus, there's a lot of names in there, and they're funny names, and they're hard to pronounce, and a lot of them we just don't know much about those characters. But some of the ones we do know about, it is really remarkable to go back and to look at how those people ended up in the line of the Messiah. And here's an example of what I'm talking about. Old man Abraham finally has a son. And the first son he has is Ishmael. And everyone involved is more than happy for God to pass the promises through that boy. And God decides, he didn't decide in the moment, he had already decided before, that's not how it's going to happen. Sarah's going to have a son. It's going to go through Isaac. I don't need your help in keeping my promises. 
right? That's like the ultimate slap in the face to God helps those who help themselves. That's exactly what Abraham and Sarah and Hagar are doing. Let's help the Lord keep his promise. And God essentially says, I don't need your help in keeping my promise. I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to do it through Sarah and I'm going to do it through Isaac. Jacob and Esau, before they're ever born, before anything is done right or wrong or whatever, God says, the younger is the one that I'm going to pick, not the older. The older is going to serve the younger. That's the way I want to do it. It went against everything that they expected and anticipated. Leah over Rachel. If you're writing this script for Hollywood and you've got a beautiful young lady and then you've got a lady with dim eyes, you go with the looker every time. And God says, that's not how I'm going to do it. I'm not doing it through Rachel. Rachel's great. She's going to have kids. One of her kids is going to be super important. He's going to save the whole family. But the promise is going to go through Leah and through Judah. That's an interesting story in and of itself. Look at Genesis 29. The first four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. How in the world does the promise bump all the way down to the fourth son? Like We've seen twins flip-flop. They're twins. That's pretty close. Now we're all the way down to the fourth son. Reuben forfeits his role as the preeminent son when he sleeps with his father's concubine. He gets bumped out. Simeon and Levi, according to Jacob himself, get bumped out of the pecking order because they go take vengeance on the men of Shechem. So that moment that I said to you, I think was good that they stood up for their sister, their father looked at it and said, nah, cutting you out. Then you come to Judah. So you come to Judah and you say, well, he must have been a really great guy compared to his older brothers, right? Oh, he was a rotten dude. Really, really rotten. And clearly worse than the others. You can read Judah's story for yourself. It's really not appropriate for children and youth. It's really bad. He's a really bad dude. And God says, that's the one. That's the one. I picked Abraham out of all the pagans in, in Ur because that was my guy. And I picked Isaac over Ishmael because that's the way I wanted to do it. And I picked Jacob over Esau. It's not because they did anything right or wrong. I picked them before either of them were born. And I'm not going to pick Reuben or Simeon or Levi. And yes, there's some human reasons for that. But at the end of the day, this is God's plan. And Leah ends up in this messianic line. So you can read that in Ruth chapter 4. There's a verse where the women of Bethlehem say that God has um, he's created this people of Israel through Leah and Rachel. And it's the first time, Ruth 4, when the women of Bethlehem look back and they say, God has been faithful to Israel through Leah and Rachel. It's the first time ever that Leah ends up on the same footing as her sister. She spends her whole life in the shadows. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. And then all those years later, the women of Bethlehem look at it and say, the same. God used those women to bring about the 12 tribes. Then you can read in Matthew 1, where the promise, Leah gets skipped over in Matthew 1. She's not mentioned there, but the promise is through her son, Judah, that the line of the Messiah uh, is traced. So against all odds, Leah 
not Rachel, Leah became part of the Messianic line. Last, Leah was unwanted by her own people, just like Jesus was unwanted by his own people. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53 is the most clearest Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And Isaiah tells you right there at the beginning, he was despised, he was rejected, there was nothing beautiful about him. There was nothing spectacular about him. His own people wanted nothing to do, do with him. And that's a prophecy, and you see it fulfilled in John chapter 1. John 1 verse 9. We'll start in 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Leah is unwanted and rejected by her father, by her husband, by her sister, by everyone in her life. No one wants her. No one sees any value in her. And God says, it's through Leah that the promise of the Messiah is going to go. I'm going to use her. Even though everyone else has rejected her, this is the plan. And you see the exact same theme, the exact same idea play out through Jesus. He comes, and just like Isaiah promised, nobody wanted him. No one was interested. The Jewish leaders rejected him. In fact, they ended up crucifying him. We want nothing to do with this man. They saw nothing physically attractive in him at all. And yet God, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, says, this is how I'm going to save my people. He did it years earlier through Leah, and he did it ultimately through Jesus at the cross. So she was unwanted by her own people just like Jesus was unwanted by his own people. So there you go. That's Leah. She shows up just for a blip in the Old Testament. She's mentioned a handful of places throughout the rest of the Bible. And in spite of always being second best, in spite of always being unwanted, she turns out to be one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. Somebody who points us to Jesus Somebody who, through her idolatry, worked through all of those issues and ends up trusting in the Lord and praising the Lord and experiences something very, very similar to what Jesus experienced. So that's Leah.